All right, let's take your Bibles. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. You know, as you're turning there, just one, one other um, you know, word of, uh, of encouragement to you, meaning I would, I'm encouraging you to do something, uh, to act in, in, a cert, in a certain way. Uh, you know, every, every week we have, we don't have 80 college students every week, but we do have visitors who are coming every week and uh, coming from all over. This has been uh, a new phenomenon really over the last couple of years, three years. I mean, we've always had retirees who've come in, you know, from places otherwise unrelated to New Bern, but this has definitely picked up steam. Uh, and so to talk to two more this morning um, that, uh, that they're just brand, brand new, just moved here, looking for a church, uh, that, that kind of thing. So whether or not you know all these folks will find Tabernacle to be the home that they they want to uh, to call their own or not, I don't know. But what I'm asking you to do is to, and I, and I think you all do a really good job. But I'm just making sure, uh, just make sure you're looking out for people that uh, that look new and slightly confused. Maybe all right, like hmm, what do I need to do? You know, if you, if you could just make every effort to reach out to folks. And, and so I'm giving you permission. I, I'm, I'll probably say this uh, the next Sunday morning as well. You have permission from me to offend long-standing members to avoid offending a visitor. So if they get a hold of an old, greatly confused, that's okay? Yes. <laughs> like me? So, yeah, that's right. Okay, so if you look at Michael and think, no, so he... But, I mean, make sure he's okay, I guess... Uh, but I, I'm, I'm just, you know, some folks, you may hesitate to want to go up and introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm, I'm, are you new here? And they say, no, I've been going here for 30 years. So I give you the right to offend that person. I would rather you offend that person than to ignore a visitor. All right? Okay? Uh, so make sure you are reaching out uh, to folks who are visiting. We, we've said this, I, I think I've said this on more than one occasion uh, you, you know, I, I'm not a guy who buys in to, to all that is out there related to, you know, church growth stuff. But one of the statistics I, I find really important is that somebody usually makes a decision within the first 12 minutes of stepping onto the property whether or not they're going to come back. And so I've yet to regale them with my delightful banter, all right? Within the first 12 minutes, they're being delighted by you, all right? Uh, you're the one meeting them. You're meeting them at the door if you're a greeter. They're sitting down beside you. Uh, they're meeting you in the nursery, whatever the case may be. Um, they, they, are, they are meeting you. So I know I've taken a few minutes of our time to do that, but I just, you know, I think it's good that we remind ourselves of this. Um, it, it goes a long way. At the end of the day, we could, ha- we could have the best promotions and events and whatever the case may be, but nothing beats one-on-one personal interaction with people, uh, and that will, that will make a difference. So, keep that in mind. You had a woman ask you... I had one visitor ask me what kind of Bible teacher was the best, and how did you answer? I said, the best. Okay, all right, good, okay, all right. Good. Okay, well, all right. Um, I don't know how do you repeat that. Like, how, how do you how do you how do you deal with that? Thank you, Bill. So yes, no, that's good though that uh, that you are ready to to respond and and because you know what a lot of these folks will do is they they will probably try and 
if, if they're enough where they're engaging you in a conversation, they're going to they're going to dig deep into you, all right? If you're the one who makes that first move, and they're going to begin asking you questions uh, about, about the life of this church and uh, what we do, how we do it, what matters to us. So, uh, so just, just be ready to be able to, to reach out and encourage folks. Um, again, just the nature of things, we, you know, we, we know that, uh, that these folks are coming in and more of them are expected uh, over the next, next few years. So, we just want to be mindful of ways we can do that. I don't say that to be funny or to suck up to you. I understand. When people say they know John MacArthur and I say our pastor is as good as him, that gives them the impression they're going to hear the word talk. No, I, I understand. No, I understand, Bill. No, I appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Revelation chapter 11. So if you just keep in mind where we are in the midst of our study of the end times. We are still, uh, we've been here for a couple of weeks, uh, we'll be here for at least one more, in this interlude period between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So thinking about it the way I've laid out my view of the end times, uh, we are into the second half, chronologically speaking, of the tribulation period. However, the interlude, this, this part that begins when, chapter, uh, when, uh, when the sixth trumpet is finished, and, and we have this, this moment, it begins in chapter 10, it's really going to go through chapter 11, at least up until verse 15. So, so we, have, we have this moment where there's a break in the action of the judgment that's being unleashed, and John gets a different kind of a vision. And usually these interludes provide then the reader, it's a bit of a respite, right? it gives us a bit of a breather from the intensity of what we've been talking about, and just reaffirms some fundamental truths about God's faithfulness, God's power, God's sovereignty over these things. Um, and, and so we, we are still in this, and just as a reminder, when we hit the interludes, Though we are roughly going in a chronological order as we unpack some of the big parts of Revelation, it doesn't always then follow purely chronologically. We'll see that tonight as we get into the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. So last week we were in chapter 10 and finished out this vision John had of a mighty angel and this, um, this call of God to eat the scroll, right, to ingest the word. It would be sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. Just a reminder of this dual nature of the word of God, the sweetness of it, yet also the, the difficulties of it, the challenges of it. It is a word full of promise, but it is also a word full of judgment. God's people should be blessed by the promises of God. Those who are not God's people should absolutely be terrified to the innermost part of their being that they stand outside of fellowship with God. Uh, as the author of Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That is true. And so, Revelation just kind of reminds us of that, and this is, this is the message then uh, that he was given. So, the end of chapter 10... John, again, eats this scroll, and then he's commanded, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So, before we jump into chapter 11, still in this interlude period, seventh trumpet hasn't blown yet, John's going to get another vision of a couple of more details of some things going on during the tribulation period, 
Before, though, we get into that, questions, comments from last week or what we've studied thus far? All right. Okay, so as we get into chapter 11, there's really two big events that happen. I said two big events. There's two, two big issues being addressed. One involves the temple, a reference to the measuring of the temple, though the vast majority of the material in chapter 11, at least verses 1 through 14, is dealing with two new characters on the scene. We've not seen these characters, the two witnesses. And it's a really strange part of the story. There's some strange little details about this story, uh, but we'll, we'll try and get into it tonight. And then as we go, again, please, if you've ever got a question, if I'm just going on and on and on, all right, just lift a hand, and when I'm ready to call on you, I will, all right? Okay, so, so let's, let's begin. We're going to begin by reading in, verse, uh, in chapter 11. We're going to begin with just the first two verses. Again, there, there, there are two issues being addressed, this measuring of the temple and then this description of two witnesses. So we're gonna, we'll deal with them both separately. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles." And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So, again, after eating this book, after being told you're going to prophesy again, now he's given another instruction. He is told to take a reed uh, and to use it like a measuring rod. Now, just as a little bit of an aside, this, this was a common instrument used back in the day. They say that these reeds grew really straight. And some could be as long as 15 or 20 feet. So they were really effective tools uh, to be able to measure out, you know, large construction projects, all right? So it's not, this is nothing weird about this, meaning that he's told to use a reed. Um, You could really liken it to, you know, somebody telling you, could you go out there with a tape measure and could you tell me how far it is, you know, from the doors to the pulpit? So this, this is what he's saying, all right? He's given this. And he's told then to measure, notice the things, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Then he's given the specific instruction, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. Now, if you think about the court, so so there, there are the two structures in the Old Testament. There's the tabernacle, right, the precursor to what would then be the temple. And just to keep you familiar, maybe in your mind you've seen pictures of this. Probably should have thrown one up on the screen, but I did not, all right? But we've talked about the the tabernacle and even the temple before. Uh, So you've got the temple complex, so you've got this large outer court that would have been accessible to anyone. And so the court, and called the court of the Gentiles, we, we see this in the New Testament, uh, it's in the court of the Gentiles, right? It's out here in this outer part of the temple complex where, uh, where they're, the, during the time of Jesus, they're selling, right, their stuff. And uh, this, so this was a part that was accessible. So John is being told here, don't measure that part. <laughs> so, so this part that has been given over to the Gentiles, 
I'll talk about the reference to it being trampled in just a moment. So set that aside. What I want you to measure then is what would be called the temple proper. So the, the, the court, then there would have been the holy place, and then there's a section inside that that's the holy of holies. All right, so these three main parts. And so he's told, he's told to measure, measure out this temple. He's then given specific instruction to measure out the, the altar. And then this is the weird one. Measure the ones who worship there. And, and, I, and I, don't, I don't think this means like literally, let's see how tall everybody is uh, who's coming into the temple and worshiping, right? That would be a strange request from the Lord. So what's going on here? What's, why, why is he doing this? Why is he being told to measure out a, a temple? So, I, you know, the, again, there, there could be a couple of options. You've got notes here. What is the reference here to this temple? And if, you, and if you're studying this stuff, here's what you're going to come across. Some are going to argue that this is purely symbolic, that the reference here it, it is one of two things. It's either a figurative reference figurative reference to the nation of Israel, identifying then this temple as being God's people and specifically meaning Israel. And so if that is the case, then what John is being told to do is to measure out the people. And there's two reasons why you might measure something, right? You might measure something out because you want to build something. But sometimes you might want to measure something out because you want to demonstrate ownership of it, right? So like when you get a survey of your land, if you're going to build something on land, you, you'll have somebody set the corners, right? Measuring it out, not just because you want to build, you're measuring it out because you're identifying the property that you own. So it suggested this is what's behind this imagery. What God is telling John to do is to measure out what God owns, and some will say this is a figurative reference to Israel. Another one is this is a figurative reference to just the church then, to, to, to all the redeemed people of God. And that's why it has the reference there at the end, not only to measure the temple, the altar, but then those who worship there, with again, the argument being that this is not a literal thing, God's not telling uh, John to literally measure out the temple and again, what he's doing is he's marking out that which belongs to him. And if that's the case, then the language here would be encouraging language. That would, that would be its point. In light of all this judgment, in light of the judgment that is to come, in light of the story that's about to follow with the two witnesses and some of the judgment that comes with their ministry, this would be a way of saying God is measuring off, marking off his people and protecting them. Now, before I then move ahead, you can tell, you all have heard me teach enough to know that neither one of those is probably what I believe, right? I mean, you, kind of, you can kind of figure out what's coming. All right, he's setting us up. He's doing his due diligence. But I should say, and this might even be in your notes, we don't want to ignore this language altogether. There is language here that does suggest God demonstrating ownership and protection. I do think that imagery is here. However, I think this is a literal reference. What I mean by that is, I think this is a way of describing an event yet to take place where the temple will be rebuilt. 
Again, there'll be, there'll be those who study this and who teach in this, who disagree with this particular perspective. So we're all friends and love one another. All right. Uh, you know, we, all, we would all get along. Uh, and that's, that's good. Uh, but I, I, I do believe, I do see in this, and not just because of this one verse, but I do see what's going to happen is there's going to be a rebuild of the temple. And so what, what John is being told to do is to measure this out to measure out that which had been rebuilt. But he says, but leave out the outer court, right, where the Gentiles are. They're, they're free to trample that, which they will do for 42 months, which equals three and a half years, all right? So three and a half years. So I think this specific timing of event is being done at the beginning of the tribulation period, all right? So this, this is marking out a temple that is being constructed uh, and will be available at the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, you might say, okay, pastor, so why, why would you say that? Uh, why would you prefer this kind of literal rendering? Well, there'd be a, there'd be a few reasons for this, uh, but primarily looking at the language that is used in some other passages, two in particular. And we've already studied these, all right, so we're not going to jump back to them, but you certainly could. I think I've Reference them there in the notes. There are two passages in particular, Matthew chapter 24 and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So Matthew chapter 24 is an important one. This is Jesus talking uh, about what's going to happen to the temple, right? This is, this is Jesus there at the temple, the second temple. Well, I say second temple. It's the temple that was built during the book of Ezra, right? The first six chapters and then expanded on by Herod. Expanded on, I mean, expanse is not even the word. <laughs> like, like significantly increased the footprint of the thing. Uh, what, what the exiles built paled in comparison to what, what Herod did then to, to beautify it and enlarge it. So this temple that was a, clearly a massive and impressive structure, this is the one that the disciples, you know, to, to tell Jesus, look, look at this. Look at this temple and its magnificence. And Jesus says, I, surely I, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another. It's, this whole thing will be torn down. Now, from that then, he gets into some teaching about that, the, the, what, what I believe is a reference to you know, another invasion that's going to come and, and devastation coming upon Jerusalem and the temple. But then in the midst of this, he teaches on something that's referenced in the book of Daniel. And he talks about in that day, there'll be a day coming when there will be then the abomination of desolation. Now, some will say that was fulfilled. They'll give a couple of options. They say, well, that was fulfilled in between the Old and New Testament when a Greek ruler came into the temple and sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies and dedicated it to Zeus, all right? Well, now that would be strange if it was already fulfilled only then for Jesus to say something like that's going to happen again. And so some then will say, well, when this happens, this abomination of desolation takes place in 70 AD when the, when the Romans come in and burn Jerusalem down and, and destroy the temple. Only problem is there's no historic reference in, as far as I'm concerned that fits the language of abomination of desolation in AD 70. So I think Jesus is suggesting 
there will be a rebuild of this temple. It's going to be torn down, but there's going to be another temple to come. This, by the way, I think is the same kind of thing. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 describes the rise, I think, of the Antichrist, the one who will oppose God and will himself sit in the temple as God. So again, I bring up these examples just as a way to say, I think this is a reference to something that will happen in the future where the literal temple will be rebuilt. There will be a third temple. Now, there's some barriers to get through to get to this thing, right? Not the least of which is the fact that they don't own it. <laughs> that, that where the temple is to be built is, you know, where the Dome of the Rock is, right? We're familiar with this and uh, then the Muslim control of that location. So traditionally the way this is taught with the perspective that I've been giving is that, that at some point there will be access granted to the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. And I think that is what he's talking about. So I think, though, I think that activity will take place, that there will be a rebuild that goes on. And what John is being told to do is to measure that out. There'll be a final earthly temple uh, that will be, again, a part of these end times events. Because what's going to happen then inside this temple I believe at the three and a half year mark, we, again, we've already discussed this topic, so I won't go back over it, but the abomination of desolation will then happen in this place. It's why John, I think, is being told to mark it out. God owns it. However, the Antichrist is going to desecrate it. He will enter into that holy of holies and will establish himself as God the God to be worshipped. So again, I think John is then being given the, this instruction. He needs to measure this out. And, and, and then for 32 months, uh, there is going to be the operation of this uh, temple uh, for 42, 42 months, three and a half years. Gentiles then are, are trampling underfoot, even the holy city, uh, but, but in particular then the outer court of the temple. All right. So that, that's my take on it, and uh, we'll stop here. Any questions about this? And again, don't hesitate. If you ever do have questions, feel free to email me. You can please feel free to do so. I can't promise I'll get back to you in the moment, all right? But we'll reply to them. Yes? So some translations uh, with verse 1 say instead of, um, uh, and, and those who worship there say to um, count those who worship there. Yes. Yeah. I looked at two, two different New American Standards. One said what is in what you read, and another New American Standard says count the number of people. Yeah, yeah. So again, I, I think there is language in this, and that probably might more accurately reflect the purpose of identifying the people in the text. That I think this is, I mean, I do think there's going to be a temple rebuilt, but I, but I do see the value of recognizing this as marking out the people of God. There is still, I think, a part of this that has a figurative sense where God is identifying those who belong to him. And that they are being, I, I think the, the language of counting, I think, is good. I think it would be similar then to, to the purpose of the read. It, it's an inventory, right? So we own this. We own this space, and it's 
got these many fruit trees in it, right? You know, so it's something kind of like that. So we own this piece of property and we've got these, these kind of people um, who are rightly identified as the people of God. Second. Yeah, yeah. So then God is telling John he's a Messianic Jew. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, no, it's a good question if you didn't hear that. So uh, John is being told and he identifies him as a Messianic Jew. Yeah, yes, yes, he is a Jew, believes in the Messiah. Uh, and he is being instructed then to mark out the location for the temple uh, that, that is in, um, that would be in line with Old Testament requirements for the construction of that temple. All right. Okay. So now we move on then to two really interesting characters that, that again, I, I think is, is being described, uh, you know, that this is not a, this is not a purely chronological thing. Um, I think these men are going to be prophesying in the last half of the tribulation. And so we, we have this, this reference then to these two witnesses. So I think the best thing to do, we just kick it off with verse 3 and we plow our way through. All right, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So, I, I believe then God, during this period of tribulation, establishes then for this period of time, the 1,260 days, establishes two witnesses, just as it says, who, who are going to be, and the, the best way to put it, I would argue they are, at least part, partly included in this, is preaching the gospel. I think they are, they are preaching Christ crucified and resurrected, and I think they are preaching the judgment that will come. And, and so that they are, they are serving in the office of prophet. Uh, the references here to, uh, you, you'll notice the reference where they are described as two olive trees and two lampstands. Uh, both olive trees and lampstands, this, this speaks to language of like spiritual renewal, revival, enlightenment, um, this, this is language, you know, of, of often connected with the communication of God's truth. Uh, and so to be described this way is that kind of giving us an identifier of what they're going to be doing. So to stand this way before the God of the earth, and, and again, describing them as olive trees and lampstands, this implies a, a preaching ministry, a declaration kind, you know, declaring kind of a ministry. 
Now, what's interesting is that reference, there, there is a reference in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, describes two people who will come, who will be as, and describes them as olive trees and lampstands. Now, you may not remember this little tidbit, but we'll see how well people listen on Sunday mornings. This is a hint. To whom does Zechariah prophesy? Anybody remember? He's a, he's a fellow prophet pal with Haggai. So who does he speak to? Does anybody remember? I gave you a hint. Who is he speaking to? What group, at what generation, what age of Jews is he speaking to? Remember, I asked you if you've been listening on Sunday mornings. It was eight years ago. Come on. So, so the first generation of exiles to go back to Jerusalem. So Zechariah is one of the prophets, and you may recall when we were dealing with the first six chapters, right, that first group that went back, that, that are all gung-ho uh, until life pops them in the mouth, and that has a way of making us less gung-ho, right? And they put the project aside for, uh, you know, a day or two or 20 years, all right? Uh, yeah, so, you know, for... Uh, for years, they set it aside. God uses Haggai and Zechariah to, to revive the people and bring them back. And Zechariah refers to two people who will help to revive the people and bring them, bring them back. Now, I think Zechariah has a dual fulfillment here in his prophecy because I think on the one hand, he's talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was the, the king for that first generation. Joshua was the high priest. And so I think they, they both serve in that function as olive tree and lampstand. I think John then, or God in speaking to John, is drawing on this imagery that, that there, there will then be these two witnesses who will speak his truth to God's people, reviving them, uh, bringing them the, the truth of the gospel. So, uh, a reference then to these two men who will be uh, preaching on his behalf. All right, so, so then it gives this really strange part. Now, I've not identified him yet, so just hold on to that. So it says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Pastor, what does that mean? It means if anybody tries to harm them, they open up their mouths and uh, they are devoured with fire. That's what, that's what I think it means. It's, it's really weird, all right? And I know, you know, this, this is one of those things you think, my goodness, no wonder they tried to make this into a movie, uh, because this is really crazy. Now, it could just be language that would describe they come with the ability to uh, be channels through which the wrath of God is poured out on those who would come against them. And so I think that is what's being described here, uh, that, uh, that they, they are then uh, given the ability to bring the wrath of God to bear on those who would oppose them. Now, this is a really profound moment, by the way. 
So you have the world that's been led into delusion under the Antichrist. God has these two witnesses who are going to be in Jerusalem preaching then the gospel. There will be enemies of this who will try and thwart them, and through them, God will issue judgment. So this is unconnected from the trumpet judgments, from the larger judgments being poured out. This would specifically then be directed at those who would try and keep these men from prophesying. And God brings judgment upon them, kills them, right? That this is a death sentence, and and anyone who would try and oppose them, this is a pretty big message, I mean, anybody who would be an enemy of God should take this really seriously. To see this kind of thing happening, it's another way to affirm uh, that, that, that God is the one who is in charge of all of this. God in His sovereignty is, uh, is overseeing this and orchestrating these events. And so, He makes sure that His messengers have the freedom to preach the message He wants them to preach. Verse 6 then tells us, they even have the power… To, to cause drought, uh, to make the water turn to blood, and to strike the earth with plagues as often as they desire. Now, we don't necessarily know to what degree they did that. It just says they have the power to do this. So they bring with them signs then of their authority, of their ability to work as God's agents. All right, so let's keep going. We're, I'm going to identify them here in just a minute, but let's get through their story first, all right? So then verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. I think that's a reference to the Antichrist. So, so the Antichrist will be unleashed, and will the protective care being given will be removed. And so the Antichrist will kill them, verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So I'm assuming you don't need me to identify where that place is. Jerusalem, right? Okay, so, so in other words, it's talking about Jerusalem. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So this is interesting the way this is described. So they're... they're, The protective covering is gone. They are executed. And their their bodies are then left in the street for three and a half days. And there's kind of like this weird perverted Christmas thing, right? I I mean, so like like turning it on its head. So these men have died and they send gifts to each other uh, for, for this, celebrating this. And you'll notice what it says. Describing all of the the, the tribe, the people's tribes, tongues, and nations. Now, this is significant because verse 11 at the end of chapter 10 had told John, I have words for you to deliver to the kings, to the tribes, to the tongues, to the nations. 
And so part of it is this. So this is what's coming up. They, all tribes, tongues, and nations. So the, the global population save the people of God, with the exception of the people of God, are rejoicing because they have, they, because, what was that word that it used? Because they have tormented the earth. So what this tells me is the things that they are said to, to have been able to do in verse 6, they do engage in this. They bring against the peoples of the earth some of these judgments. Again, separate from the judgments of the trumpets. Those, are, those have been going on too, but these are directly em, empowered by God, but through the declaration of these pro- prophetic voices. And so again, that, that's what happens then for three and a half days. They rejoice that they are dead. Then verse 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah, I bet. Once again, you've got to love the Bible's understatedness. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So that, that's kind of the transition then out of the period of the sixth trumpet and then this interlude that encompasses a variety of time periods, of piece, pieces and parts of the tribulation, then getting us ready for the seventh. Just an aside here about the comment that they, they, the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. I do not necessarily associate that positively. It's like saying gave glory as if they they all got saved and became worshipers. I think it's simply attributing to God proper recognition of what was his display of power. In other words, it's a way of saying that the enemies see. The enemies see this is all God's work. God raises these prophets up from the dead and they ascend into heaven. There's this massive earthquake that fells a tenth of the city, 7,000 people die as a result. So, again, so, all right, so we have these, these guys, so who are they? That's the question. You'll note in your notes, I give you some options. I think I give you all of these. Some have said this is Peter and Paul. Seems really unlikely, um, but that it's the, those who had taken approach to Revelation that say that Revelation's describing things that were happening in the day or had already happened, um, would argue that these two witnesses are Peter and Paul, Nero is the Antichrist. Um, I, I just, textually, I just, don't, I just don't know how you say that. I mean, for all of the ways I might disagree with other options as well, that one just seems um, really untenable to me. Um, so, so we're going to pass on from that. All right. Uh, some say this is just a symbolic reference. This is Israel. Um, com- communicate, you know, the, the 144,000 witnesses. It's co- another, they'd say this is connected to them, all right? This is the same kind of thing. It's not literally two witnesses. It's just redeemed Israel um, sh- sharing the message. Likewise, some will say it is the church doing the same thing. Then another option is it is Israel and the church doing this. 
But then an option that I prefer, it's two literal people. And that's what I think. I think it's two literal people. I think it's describing two actual prophets that will be prophesying during the end of time. They will be given this kind of power. So that still doesn't identify who they are. I think it's Elijah and Moses. And I know I'm not out of, like, this is not unusual probably to many of you who've studied this before. I think it's Elijah and Moses who are doing this. So, Dick, are you about to ask a question? No, I Okay. Well, well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are there are references here um, that would identify them as this. Uh, so you, you mentioned verse six. So the reference to uh, um, the, drought. the drought turning the water to blood, causing plagues. Wow, that sounds really Mosesy, right? Uh, and then the fact that uh, that they were called up to heaven in a cloud. You know, God's got a history of doing that with one other guy, uh, and he did that with Elijah. You know, so then the other thing about these two, uh, really why I would identify it this way is because they really, it's it's the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, the story where where Jesus takes uh, Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain he transfigures himself in glory, right? The glory of his, uh, of his divinity, and, and they see two others with him. That the text identifies as Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't think they had like Old Testament prophet playing cards, all right? So, you know, they didn't have an actual picture, so, but they just knew, all right? They just knew that's who this is. And Peter being Peter says, <laughs> this is an event here, man. Let's set up some booths. We'll got one, one for each of you. And you all can hang out. Really, the word used there for booth is kind of like the word for tabernacle. What Peter says is, let's, let's build like three different tabernacles up here. And boy, we, we'd get the crowds, all right? People come by, they could see you, they could see all this. So Moses and Elijah show up at Transfiguration as an Old Testament testimony to the nature of Christ. Now, why was it so important that it was Moses and Elijah? Because it represents the law and the prophets, right? It represents the law and the prophets. That the Old Testament is being brought in at Jesus' transfiguration to testify to Jesus' fulfillment of these things. He fulfills the law and the prophets. So it seems to have symmetry to me that these guys would show up again at the end, right before the second coming of Christ. They show up right before the crucifixion and resurrection, uh, we know that Elijah goes up in a in a you know a chariot of fire, so he has an unusual death right ending to his life. Moses, we know his body was never found, and we have this weird story in Jude about Satan and an angel fighting for the body of Moses. Um, so so we know we know that. So there's something strange about both of their deaths. And again, they show up there at Transfiguration. To me, there just seems to be symmetry that they would then be brought back here at the end to give final testimony to the law, to the prophets, to the truth of Christ crucified and resurrected. So these guys then are going to be functioning here during the tribulation period. They're going to bring their own kind of judgment and, uh, and, and then, then this text ends by saying, so the, the third woe is coming, and next week we'll jump into the seventh trumpet and then make our way to the bold judgments. So before we end, though, question, Maureen.
ask that again. The 5,000 people who fled. Okay. Oh, oh, from Ezra, from this morning in Ezra, okay. No, no, no. Got it, okay, okay, I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you. No, that's a whole separate story. I was just commenting that I think the reference in Zechariah pointed to a, an initial fulfillment among Zerubbabel and Joshua, but, but just, just as a symbol, this, this, I think that, I think what Zechariah is doing is pointing to a greater fulfillment that comes at the end of time. So there's a gap. Yes. Yes. No, that's, yeah, no, my bad then if I didn't make that clear. So no, this, this happens, this doesn't happen during the time of Ezra. The, the, this, this is going to happen at the very end of time, the earthquake, and then the people dying in the earthquake. Different group. Sure. Okay. Sure, sure. Yeah, good question. Okay. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll get back together again next week. All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. What a privilege it has been to be with one another on this Lord's Day, uh, to be able to worship, to study your word. We thank you for a week that lays out before us. We are grateful that you and your sovereignty uh, are, are a God who leads, guides, provides for us. You, you rule and reign, and we can trust you and depend upon you uh, and your gracious provision for us. And so, Father, we by faith commit ourselves uh, to living faithfully this week. We, we trust our lives to you, asking that you would use us for your glory. Give us opportunity to speak truth, to be able to, to express the love and hope that comes in Christ and the need to cling to our Savior and to His atoning cross. And Father, I just pray that you grant wisdom then to these who are here as they live the various lives you've called them to, that they would do that in faith and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.